Good morning, church. It's good to be up here before you all. It's good to be able to bring God's word to you as well. Uh, if you guys don't know me, my name is Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here. I lead the college and young adults ministries here at this church. Uh, I am I'm currently recovering from a, a cold this past week, so that's why if I have to reach down, grab my bottle of water to kind of just wet my throat again, um, just excuse me for that. Uh, but thank you all for, for those of you guys praying for me uh, so that we may hear God's word this morning. Uh, today, I, I, I'm, I've been tasked to bring to you the topic, topic about talking about consumerism, talking about how to deal with our riches. Uh, it's a topic that it could be near and dear to our hearts because we're talking about how to really manage our money, how to manage our blessings, how to manage much of the things we enjoy in this world and in this life. And so I, I'm going to try to tread, uh, tread the ground here carefully, but also want in a way be challenging for, for us here, for all of us, myself included, on how do we indeed steward our riches in this time? How do we become generous disciple makers in a consumer-driven age? Uh, in 2019, Christianity Today published an article, and it was, the article was written by a missionary in the field, and it, it was the missionary, she was talking about the impacts of Netflix and technology on missionaries in the field, and, and this missionary, she found that these modern technology, though it was great for her to stay connected with her home, with her families back home, social media, things like that, uh, and, and Netflix movies, if, you know, if she ever felt homesick, they can just watch Western movies, right? It, it made it harder for her to be truly present in the field. And so instead of like, you know, overcoming cultural shock, which is what many missionaries face when they go into the field, they, had, they spend usually a year or two getting over that cultural shock. Instead of overcoming that, she just simply stay connected with her friends and family back home. And so she never truly, you know, adapted to her foreign culture. You see, technology has made our world smaller. In general, it's, it's a good thing, right? For, when you talk about missions, we, we talk about with technology, we can now access you know, hard, remote places that we can't get to before, but now that we have the ability to, it's great. We can now bring the gospel to these remote places. Uh, through the urbanization of cities, now many people in the villages and far remote places are coming to the global cities, finding jobs, finding education, and we can send missionaries to these big urban cities and reach unreached people groups who are coming together in one place. But the reality of all this modern technology also impacts the hearts of the missionaries that we send out there. For, for many of them, home then becomes just a screen away. It's just one plane ticket back. You see, the sacrifice to bring the gospel to the nations no longer feels as great. And what happens is that with these riches, and what I mean by riches, I mean the ability to travel, the ability to, to connect, all these things that we have, it actually weakens the faith and the conviction these missionaries carry into the field. I was reading this article, and I thought to myself then, how much of these same technologies has impacted our hearts here? as disciple-makers in our own communities. You know, last week in, in our congregational series, Pastor Albert talked about being a global Christian, being someone who thinks about the world, how to care for the world, how to pray for the nations, the need for missions. And my hope today is to bring to light the challenges, the challenges of what uh, that, that stops us, that makes it hard for us to really care for missionaries that really care about evangelism, that care about disciple making. And so my question then, my question on this is this, do our riches, our comforts, our wealth, our entertainments make us weak at making disciples? Do our riches make us weak at making disciples? You see, the, the comforts of our lives can often distract us it can often distract us from truly engaging in an all-out, full-force discipleship. Uh, it, 
like the missionary in this Christianity Today article, sometimes the riches of our lives, the, the things we get to enjoy, and they're not necessarily bad things, but they can become a hindrance to how we carry out the Great Commission. And so when we look upon a church like ours, a, a suburban, middle class, typically financially stable church, I think we have to think about how do we manage then our finances? How do we manage our riches? And now, just to be clear, I know that you know, speaking to a big room, speaking to a lot of people online, there are some of you who are indeed financially needy. And so I want to make sure I, I, I recognize that, that some of you still have loans to pay off. Some of you are saving just enough to get by week by week, and, and I understand that. And, and so when I say that our church needs to consider how we manage our riches, I want you to know that I don't mean every single one of us. I am talking more to the general demographic of our church. And, and, and we're being honest, the general demographic, because of the standard of living in our area, right? And our area in general is typically high. But for those of you guys who do wrestle financially, this sermon may not be directly targeted at you, but I do think the principles that are laid out here are still good things that you can still apply to your specific situations. So I just want to keep that in mind, that there's still things you can gather from this. There's still principles you can apply. But the examples that I'm probably going to be using throughout this message will not reflect your immediate context. And I just want to be sensitive to that. With that, let me, let us turn now to the Bibles, to the Word of God. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verse 17 to 19. Verse 17 to 19. Uh, in, in a letter to 1 Timothy, written by the Apostle Paul to his disciple Timothy, this is the first letter, all right, pa- Pastor Hanley taught upon the second letter earlier in our congregational series. We're now looking upon the first letter, 1 Timothy, and we're looking here Paul speaking to Timothy, who's a pastor over the church in Ephesus. And, and the whole letter is pastoral. He's, Paul is instructing Timothy how to lead, how to instruct this church. And here in chapter 6, there is a focus on the issue of money. In our passage, Paul specifically addresses really the wealthy Christians within the church. So look with me here at verse 17. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, here's God's word. It says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Well, we see here, in this passage, in these three verses, two central instructions given to the rich. First, to watch their selfish hearts, to watch their selfish hearts, and second, to live a generous life. <coughs> Excuse me. And so let's take a look at this first point. Oh, need to turn this on. To evade the selfish lies of this earthly kingdom. To evade the selfish lies of this earthly kingdom. Paul here gives two instructions. It says, For the rich of this age, charge them to not be haughty and to not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Let's take a moment and examine the second part first to not set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. What does it mean to not set our hopes on these things? Well, if you take a look here in your Bibles, and you look up a few verses, you look at verse 10, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Paul here writes, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. The love of money. <coughs> what is that? What is the love of money? The love of money, well, it's not just a love for, like, dollar bills, right? 
You're not going to, I want to collect all the dollar bills in the world. Right? It's not that. One dollar bill, right? If you, if you take a look at, you know, the dollar bill material-wise, if you just, that, that green paper, you know, rectangular shape has the number one on it, that material-wise isn't really more valuable than a hundred dollar bill in terms of materials, right? It's made of the same materials. You see, the value between the two is social. It comes from a social economy. Money has a social value. And so the love of money, then, is more than what money can actually buy. Money can buy many things, indeed. It, it can buy you fame, social status, power, security, comfort. It can buy you choice, options. And certainly the love of money includes all that. But the love of money at its core, really, because it's a social value, it's trust, a hope in this world's promises. It's a hope in this world's promises. And think about what it means to actually buy anything in this world. You're saying when you're bringing money to the cashier or to, you're checking out Amazon, you're investing that money into a business and you're saying to that business, I believe in you. See, here's the difference between investing in the kingdom of God versus investing in this world. In the kingdom of God, when you're investing money, you're saying, I believe and what you can do for God. Right? When you're donating to a charity, you're donating to a church, I believe in what you can do for God. But in the earthly, in the marketplace, right, in this earthly kingdom, when you bring money, you're buying something, you're saying, I believe in you for what you can do for me. And that's the difference. When you're buying new clothes, you're thinking about how it can make you feel better about yourselves. When you're buying a new phone, you're believing that you need the latest technology to be a world-class photographer. You're subscribing to Disney+. Plus. You believe that the movies and the shows it offers you will bring you some sort of comfort and rest. You fly to Hawaii or Japan for vacation because you believe those locations will provide you some sort of awe and refreshment. Know here what I'm saying. The issue is not the stuff or the subscriptions or the vacations. The issue that I'm targeting at here is indeed the heart. The heart motivation behind these purchases. Are you making these financial decisions oriented around God or for yourselves? You see, the self-oriented decision making is really a byproduct of our consumeristic age. In a consumer-driven economy, we have been trained, wired to think this way, to make decisions based on what benefits us the most. And, and, and you may be hearing me, and you'll be saying to yourself, well, of course, that's what it means to buy something when I'm making decisions, right? I'm looking for the best deal, right? When something is free or something is cheap, that's amen, that benefits me, I, I, that's good stuff, right? Well, sure. But let's consider the age that we're in. And let's think about it for a moment. Let's have a wider view of history, actually. Because never before in history have we, as consumers, been presented with such a vast array of choices. And I think, for, for example, just a supermarket. Right? A supermarket, you, you, before, before this modern invention of city infrastructure, of roads, of vehicles, personal cars, of canned and dry goods before refrigeration, when you were to buy groceries, you're limited to your local market in your town. That's probably within walking distance. You, you, that's all you had. You're, 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 that's your only choice. But now, not only do we have a massive selection when we walk into a supermarket of canned goods and other products from different brand names, but we will even drive 20 minutes outside of our local zip code to shop at Trader Joe's or Whole Goods or Whole Foods. Right? It's, you see, having a favorite grocery store is not the problem, but it's the fact that we are going to make these choices. We've been trained to make these choices to find what we enjoy, to find what, to, to make these choices based on our preferences. Now, that itself is not a problem, right? That's the, that's the marketplace. That's this earthly kingdom. 
But think then what happens when we bring this kind of decision-making, when our hearts are trained this way, and then we bring it into the church. See, even when we talk about the local church, there's probably just, in the past, there's usually just one or two churches within a town. If you belong to that town, you went to that church, and you knew everyone at that church. You're, you're stuck at that church. You didn't have another option to go to another church, Right? If you had a problem with someone, you, you don't just run away from it, you actually figure it out biblically, right? But now, we have a menu of options when it comes to churches, right? And so naturally, when people are to choose a church, what, did, what are they going to do? How are they going to make that choice? Where is, what is their choice based on? It's going to be based on their preferences, I mean, even when you think about, again, technology is not a problem, but you, like right now we're streaming this, and now there's a bunch of choices online of listening to different sermons, listening to different broadcasts, online streaming services. It's not, not a big deal. Not, you know, that's, not a, that's not the issue itself because, again, we're, as there's flu going around, people are sick. It's good that we're able to still reach you know, our own people. But if we have all these choices, we also notice that there are people who are choosing to stay home and stream whatever service they want out of their own comfort. You see, this is the kind of decision I'm making that comes when we have options, when we have choices. Which is why Paul warns us here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, for the rich in this present age, charge them... Um, sorry, that's wrong one. Uh, should have gone back to verse 17. Let's do that. Charge them not to be haughty. Right? Not to be haughty, not to be proud, not to be selfish in your thinking, your decision making. He focuses upon our hearts here. You see, what does it mean to be rich? It, if you really think about it, it, it means you have the ability to choose. That's really the power of money. The reason why we enjoy having wealth, materials, resources is because it gives us options. It gives us the ability to choose, right? You can, if you have the money, you can buy that Starbucks and not 7-Eleven coffee because you have the means to do so. <laughs> not that Starbucks or 7-Eleven, I don't know which one's better. Or, I, I don't think you should go to either one of them. <laughs> but you, you choose one or the other because, over the other, because you have the means to do so. You choose to have a vacation, right, on some island, some tropical island, instead of going to Huntington Beach, because you can. You have the ability to do so. You can make that choice. And when you have that choice, you feel like you're in control. See, money gives you the ability to choose. Or think about it this way. If you were to get into a car accident, if you don't have the money, then you have no other options. You're left with a dented car. Or if your car is totaled, then you have to start taking public transportation to get to work. That's, you have no other choice. But if you have the finances, you have options. You can choose to either fix the car, or you might be thinking, well, that car is done. Might as well buy a new one. Or you can let insurance take care of it, and you're willing to pay the premium. You see, there's now options. That's the point. With Riches, with money, you can choose. You have that control. You see, having these shorter riches, the, the riches itself is not the problem, but the question is, what does that do to our hearts? And if we're not careful, wealth can teeter our decision makings to revolve more around us rather than around God. And the focus then and when the focus then becomes more upon us, upon our own well-being, what, what happens then? It, it makes us more than dependent upon our riches. Right? Now we see, if we start making more choices revolve around us, now we need those riches in order to remain in control, to remain in power. And we're more dependent upon our riches and not upon God. And that becomes your source of power, which is why Paul says here, not only not to be haughty, but not to set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. See, Paul here warns the rich people of the church. Don't say your hope. Don't depend on your riches. Why? He says here that these riches are uncertain. 
They're uncertain. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that riches are uncertain? Is Paul here talking about the stock market? It could be. You could apply it to that. But let's, let's think about this for a moment. There is something about wealth being certain that's actually talked about by Christ, by Jesus himself. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus here talks about the difference between serving God and serving money. I think I have this slide somewhere. Here it is. Serving God and serving money. And in chapter 6, verse 24, at the end of verse 24, Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money at the same time. You have to choose one or the other, right? You can only set your hope on one or the other, on either God or money, not both. You can't have your cake and eat it too, right? If you don't know what that means, it just simply means you have to choose one or the other. And then note verse 25. It begins with the word, therefore. So it's a a continuation of this thought. Jesus then goes on to explain what it looks like to worship God and not money, to serve God and not money. And he says here in verse 25, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you put on, and so on. Do not be anxious about your life. Why? Well, verse 26 to 31, Jesus explains all that. He explains to us that when we trust in God, we trust that he will provide. And we depend upon him alone. And that's a sure thing. You see, when we worship money, we end up becoming anxious. We end up becoming anxious because... We feel the need to control and seize that power that money gives us. But to worship God, you relieve yourself of that anxiety by giving up control and power to God. Money brings anxiety into life. Let me explain this way. You see, money, as I mentioned before, it can, it can give you some temporary comfort and security, but that, that peace is uncertain. It's, it offers no stability. It's, it's like a table wobbling on two legs. You can have peace today and lose it all tomorrow. When, you, when you're dealing with money, when you serve money, you're really hoping that what you end up buying today will hold the same value tomorrow. But you see, we're, we understand that that's not true, and that's why that brings anxiety. We, we understand that in this world, nothing is a sure thing. There's uncertainty about all this. The riches of this world are uncertain. Everything depreciates in value, right? The minute you buy a car, drive it off the lot, it loses 20% of its value. Or you can think about it this way. Say you subscribe to Netflix, and you know, when you first subscribe to Netflix, you sign in, you're like, man, choices. Right? I got all the movies I want. I can choose and pick and choose my favorite ones. Just ignore the ones that I don't care about. And you're overwhelmed by all this. You have this power at the tip of your fingertips. And then a week later, after running through your favorite movies and shows, suddenly these movies and shows don't offer, don't seem as, as attractive as they did before, right? It depreciated in its value. That's why... They're always constantly trying to come out with new stuff, and we're all complaining that it's no longer good. Even when it comes to the bare necessities, right, food, clothing, the more you have, the more burdensome it becomes. When you have more options for food, you suddenly care about having variety, picking out a menu for your family to enjoy. When you have more clothes, you come with more choices of what to wear, how to mix and match, right? There brings more anxiety. And so when Paul speaks about the uncertainty of riches here, he is talking about this anxious world consumerism, a world where everyone is looking to slap insurance on something they own because they're afraid of losing it. And Paul says here, do not set your hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God. Why? Because God 
is the one who provides for us everything to enjoy. And we hear the phrase a lot, worship the giver, not the gift. We hear that a lot, we understand it, we know it. But what exactly does that mean? It means don't depend upon the riches of your life. but Put your hope on God, not on your wealth. Live your life dependent upon God. Now, what does that look like? And that's when we get to our second point. To embrace the selfless life of the eternal kingdom. To embrace the selfless life of the eternal kingdom. Verse 18 and 19 explains this. Right? And the instruction in verse 18 continues from verse 17. Right? It, it, Paul is saying, charge them not to do this, not to do that. But in verse 18, saying, charge them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. We see here, really, there's two parts to this. To do good works and to be generous. Right? To do good works and to be generous. That's... And so what does Paul then mean by good works? Let's take this apart one by one. What does Paul mean by good works? Well, if you read through the pastoral epistles and you study it, right? pastoral epistles being 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, good works is actually a major theme in these epistles. For Paul, it's important that the church is engaged with good works. And what he means by that is that he believes that the church not only needs to preach good doctrine, but they need to live good doctrine. In other words, good works, to kind of sum up what he's teaching in 1 Timothy, actually. We've been going through 1 Timothy and in transit, and so we've been in this book for a while now. But good works, really, is godliness put into action. Good works is godliness put into action. It's an our display of your inward godliness. Uh, let me give you some verses for context. Titus. Titus chapter 2, verse 7. Paul writes, show yourself in all respects to be a model, right? An example of good works. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21. Paul says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. He's saying that if you are set apart, if you are chosen by God, saved, brought into his church, you are now useful. Meaning you go act that, you go become this vessel of honorable use, ready for good works. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 25, Paul says, so also good works are conspicuous, meaning they are out there. They're, they, you can see them. They're publicly in view to all. And even for those, even for those good works that are not out there, they cannot remain hidden. They will eventually be shown. Good works, then, is an outward display of godliness. And what that means, what that basically means is that everything that you do, all that you say, all that you, how, all that you, how you act, how you behave, how you make decisions, everything is done to make God known. Really, we're talking about disciple making. See, good works demonstrate that your faith is legit. And for the rich, for the rich, good works then must be characterized by their generosity. Must be characterized by their generosity, which is what Paul here is referring to, right? To do good, be, to be rich in good works, and then to be generous and ready to share. It's recognizing that our wealth, our wealth is meant to be shared. It's a blessing that's meant to be shared. A selfless life is a life that's focused on blessing others, especially those who are in need. Titus chapter three, verse fourteen, Paul writes this: "Let our people learn to be the." to devote themselves to good works. What, is he, what do these good works do? So as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. And so just to be clear, the word generous here, right? the word generous that we see here in our passage, it doesn't mean you're just suddenly selling everything and giving everything away freely. Again, we're talking about the heart. The word here means to be ready, to be willing to impart and share your resources. It's a focus upon where your heart is lies. Earlier in 1 Timothy, 
Paul actually describes a godly widow and how, what her good works look like. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10, he's, this is how he describes a widow. The, a widow of good works is one who has brought up children, has shown hospitality. Um, the word hospitality here means uh, you love strangers, has washed the feet of saints, care for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. You see, a good work here is about having that generous heart ready to bless others. And some of you guys may hear maybe thinking, as we're going through this message, well, then that means I can have both, right? If it's not about selling everything, I can have them money, riches, and good works, right? <coughs> Excuse me. Right, so can I have both then? Well, in many cases... Yeah, I think that's true for many of us here. You're, we're, we do indeed have riches. We're considered rich by many. And yes, many of us here do serve faithfully. I'm not doubting that. I'm not questioning your faithfulness. But there are two areas that I do want us to think critically about this. Now, how does our riches and our good works relate to one another? First, I want us to think about this. If I were to share a gospel with a friend, an unbeliever, and I tell this friend, hey, you know, repent of your sins. Believe in Christ. Come to know Christ because he's worth everything. It's worth sacrificing your life to know Jesus. And then after our conversation, I go again to my Lexus, and I drive to my two-story house, and I, I don't know, plan my next vacation playing, while playing mini golf. And yes, I said mini golf. I don't golf, but I will play mini golf. <laughs> I'm not saying that we're hypocrites when we do this. I'm saying that what I'm asking here is, what does that look like when we're talking with this friend, with this unbeliever? What does it look like to them when you're saying Christ is worth everything and then we just go back to living like everyone else does in this world? Again, not saying you're being fake. I believe here many of us have true and good intentions. But what does that look like to them? What does it look like to our evangelisms? Right, if Christ is more valuable than, than, than everything we own, then our lives should look like that. Second thing I want you guys to consider. Yes, we are indeed wealthy. And yes, we can still do good works. We have both. But I do want us to consider why so many of us are still anxious. Why do we still wrestle then with anxiety? We're worried about so many things. We're worried about our economy, our jobs. We're worried about the politics of our current nation and worry about losing our religious freedom. We're worried about our school systems and the future education of our kids. We're worried about social media and the influence it has over our teens. We're worried about so many different things. We're anxious. As I mentioned before, our anxiety is connected to where we set our hope in. And yes, we have indeed received many blessings from God to enjoy, right? We've grown up in a relatively strong American economy. We have religious freedom right now. We, many of us grown up getting a classical education, learning how to think, how, you know, just being and having jobs. But now in these times, in these times, we see how uncertain these blessings are, don't we? How uncertain they are. And what does that do? That creates anxiety. Perhaps then, we should ask ourselves, perhaps we have leaned too far in setting our hopes in these riches rather than in God. You see, there is a reason why Jesus, there is a reason why Jesus seems to be warning the rich that their downfall will be their wealth and their power, right? Jesus says in Luke 18, verse 24, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult. It's hard. He's not saying it's impossible because God can do the impossible, but it's difficult. Or in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus says, for what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? There's something here about riches that can be our downfall. 
Or when Jesus is talking about what it means to follow him, the cost of following him, he says in Luke 24, 33, so therefore, if any of you who does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. See, my challenge here, church, my challenge here is not questioning your saving faith. I believe many of us here are indeed saved. Not questioning your intentions, believe you have good intentions. I want us to ask ourselves honestly, have our riches made us, make us, made us weak? Have our riches made us weak at making disciples, at doing good works, at being the global Christians, at becoming missionaries, not just overseas, but here in our own community. Have our riches made us weak in doing these things? In that Christianity Today article, as I mentioned earlier in the beginning, you know, that, that missionary, she admits that the modern technology of social media, the, the, the easy ticket home, those riches made it difficult for her to really immerse herself in missionary work and good works and disciple making. And the reason why that is true is not because the technology is bad or that the wealth is bad. The reason is that is when things got hard, when things got hard for her in the field, when the culture shock of entering into a foreign land hits you and you don't know the language, you don't know the people, it becomes, it takes all day just to send out mail, right? That's what happens when you enter into a foreign country. And it's just tiring. When things got hard, it became easy for her to escape into the comforts of what you know as home. You can jump on social media and connect immediately back with your friends and family back home. You can turn on Netflix and immerse yourself in English-speaking Western films. You have the option, the easy option, of just buying a plane ticket and going back home. You see, the missionary here in this article, she explains how these options made it harder. Again, options, choices, made it harder for missionaries, and made it harder for missionaries to really just do stuff. To, to do mission work, to evangelize, to do good works. And, and that is really what separated the current generation of missionaries from the missionaries of the past. Because in the past, going to the field truly meant going without a means of returning home. And she admitted that in the past, this actually made stronger missionaries. Why? Because they had to set their hope not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. They had to depend upon God. And it made their relationship with God that much stronger, but it also made their work that much more fierce and convictional. You see, while we may not be in a foreign country, these same consumer technologies and products offer us the same escapism when life gets difficult for us here. I mean, think about why so many of us rather engage ourselves and merge ourselves into K-dramas or into the Marvel Cinematic Universe or why video games are so addicting. Right? It's, it, what they do is they offer us an escape to another world where we can find connection and resolution, a place where we feel at home. At the end of the day, when we talk about consumerism, it's really businesses, what they're doing is they're offering you the ability to build your comfort zone. And that draws our hearts away from the difficult task of making disciples. When our hearts depend upon our riches for life, what happens? What happens is that we begin to lose sight of what is truly life. And what is truly life is eternal life. That's found in Christ alone. Which is why Paul here writes at the end of verse 19 that we are to do good works, be rich in good works, be generous. Why? So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And what he's talking about here, he's talking about eternal life found in Christ alone. Church, if we, are to call, if we are to steward our riches, if we truly steward our riches for the kingdom of God, for the eternal kingdom, 
when we do so, when we're willing to sacrifice what we have and lay our, lay our hearts upon God, well, what happens is that we start to take hold, truly take hold on what's most important, and that is Christ. When we come to see the greatness and the beauty of Christ, that should overwhelm us. That should make everything else look so dull and unimportant. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 13, 44, that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field when, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What makes that field so valuable? What's this treasure? It's Christ. It's the only way, and the only way for this man to get to Christ is by selling all that he has. When we let go of our dependency upon our riches and we find Christ, oh, there's great joy to be found. And that's why Jesus tells the rich young ruler in Luke 18 that if you want eternal life, he tells him that you lack one thing. What's that one thing? Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then notice that he says, come follow me. When you do that, you have me. You have Christ. That's why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The point being is this. When Christ opens up our hearts, to his greatness, to his beauty, to his salvation. When he opens up our hearts to see that the greatest satisfaction of our souls is not found in what these riches can do for us, but our greatest satisfaction is found in how Christ can be exalted in our lives. And that changes the way we look upon our riches. Brothers and sisters, if we want to be a vibrant church of disciple makers, if we want to be missionaries here in our community, if we want to evangelize and disciple our own, the next generation, our kids, perhaps where we need to begin is beginning with how we steward and use our riches. Which means that the next time we make a purchase, next time we plan a vacation, Perhaps we have to ask ourselves, does this, product, does this product make us look good? Does it, make us, does it simply give us comfort? Or does this thing that we're considering, this purchase we're making, does it make Christ look more precious than anything else in this world? It doesn't mean that it's wrong to buy nice things or to go on vacation. But I want us to ask ourselves, how can these things make Christ shine all the more brighter because that's the gospel we preach. And so then how did we do that? And I think as suburban middle-class Christians, that's a question that we need to wrestle with. And to be honest, that answer to that question is going to be different for every single one of you. Every single one of you are in a different context, different situations. Every single one of us is blessed by God according to how God desires. We're blessed differently. And so I can give you, you know, a step-by-step answer to this question. But I can share kind of things I'm personally wrestling with. See, I, I understand I come from a pretty well family. I'm financially stable. And, and so what does that mean for me? Where does my heart lie? What do I depend on? Many of you guys know that, again, as I'm sharing this example, I'm not saying I have the answer, but these are things I'm wrestling with. Um, You guys know that my wife and I were in the middle of renovating our new home. Uh, If you guys don't know, we own a home pretty much right here behind church, and we're renovating it. And and we're we're in the middle of this renovation. We've been living with our parents for about one year now. Uh, we, We have a son now. And we're looking forward to moving to our new home. We're looking forward to it. And yet, at each stage of this renovation, and yes, at each stage, we have the choice because we have the, the means to. We have the freedom to choose the type of materials we want, the type of design, layout, all that. 
and as we're doing these decision-making, I'm, I'm constantly reminding myself, and I'm talking, engaging with my wife, and I'm asking her, hey, that's, that's fine. We can buy these things. We can, you know, the way, make our home the way we like it. But let us remember what type of home we want. At least the type of home I'm trying to build. is one that's open to the community around us. Our house is located in a cul-de-sac, which means that I want to be able to host I don't know, some neighborhood barbecues and meet our neighbors and invite them in. I want my, our neighborhood to know our house to be that annoying household that constantly have people over with cars parked in front of their driveways. And, and that's okay if they know it's that way, as long as we're also inviting them to join us, right? I want the people here at our church to know that our house will be available for you guys. Even if we're not home, I'll you know, plan to install those security code doors, the security lock, and you guys know me, when I used to live alone and all uh, myself, before I got married, I gave many people my code to get into my house, to use my house, even when I'm not there, even when I was out of country, right? I, I, I don't care if it's clean, there's, there can be kid toys everywhere, just, I have nothing to hide. I, if you guys need to use it, use it. Or we think about this way, we talk a lot often, we're talking about what does it mean to secure our house, security, right? And that provides comfort. So we're talking about installing video cameras, you know, and the ring doorbell and all that stuff. Good stuff. You should do it. But if I were to have a secure house, I want to make sure that blessing is not just for me. It's not just for the security of my own family. But if we have a secure house, maybe this house can provide safety for those who are in danger. Perhaps someone who is coming from an abusive family and they need a place of safety for the night. Can our can our safe house provide that security for him or her? Or perhaps a single mom, and we've been talking a lot with Obria Pregnancy Center, but what if a single mom who decides not to have an abortion, they just busy with taking care of kids, holding a job, and they need a place to rest. Can our secure house be a place of comfort, security for them? Can we welcome them in? I talk to my wife a lot about fostering kids, adoption. They're not far off our minds. These are things that I'm engaging, I'm talking about. Again, I'm not saying I have the answers. What I'm saying is that if I have, if we have a nice, comfortable home, I want to be able to share that. I want to be able to bless others with it. So that it doesn't, so that when people come to meet us, they're not gonna, I don't want to be wowed by what we have, but I want them to be wowed by the generosity. And through that, I can share with them Christ. And yes, these things will come with sacrifice. If I were, again, I'm not sure if I can do all these things. We're not there yet. You guys can pray, see. I don't know how God will lead us. But these are things I'm thinking about, and there will be sacrifice. Right? If I, that means there will be less time to sit back and join NBA game. There will be less time to watch and catch the latest Marvel film. There will be less time to even go on vacation. And yes, that also might mean that I need to call insurance if my house gets damaged or things get stolen and my expenses will go up. But if it means that the people my wife and I can minister to, our, even our children, to show them what it means to be generous Christians, if they can see that Christ is the most valuable treasure of our lives, then all that loss is worth it. Again, the answer for you will depend upon your context, your situation. Not saying you have to do exactly everything I just said, because I don't we're not even there yet. We're just trying to figure it out. I'm just asking us to think about how, what does it mean to manage our riches so that we are to do good, to be generous, to be rich in good works. So that in all that we do, we make Christ primary. We make Christ the treasure of our lives. As I close, let's I want us to come back to the passage and think about this one last part. In verse 19, in verse 19, it says here that when we are to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, what are we doing? We're then storing up treasure. Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. What does Paul mean by that? In, what he means is that our earthly riches, while our earthly riches have temporary depreciating value, when we make disciples of Christ, 
that has permanent, eternal value. Think about that. Think about what it means to truly make disciples, to bring them up and have them come to take hold of what's truly life, to take hold of Jesus himself. We talk all the time about raising the next generation. And it's not wrong to give our children, our family, our friends a good life. But church, it is so much better if our children, our family, our friends can share eternal life with us in Christ, in the eternal kingdom. That is so much better. When our lives is oriented around Christ, not around us, we will find that the greatest joy the greatest joy that we're going to have is when we get to heaven, we look to our left and our right, we see the people we have blessed and ministered to by our side, seeing to our great God who reigns. That's what it means to make disciples. And that's why when we're blessed in this way with these riches, let's invest it in something that's worthy. Let's invest it in the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so the big idea is this, to make disciples by investing your riches into the eternal kingdom in such a way that makes Christ look more precious, more valuable than anything here on earth. Let me pray. Lord, we are indeed blessed in so many different ways. And Lord, I pray that, first of all, that we be thankful. That we recognize that what we have has been given by you. You are indeed the great giver, the one who gives us all things to enjoy. But Lord, as we enjoy these things, let us remember that our hearts should depend upon you, not upon these riches. And that, Lord, if we're willing to give up these riches to honor you, then that, Lord, that teaches us how to then steward these riches. And steward them freely and generously to bless others, to engage in good works, to make disciples. I pray, Lord, that God, for each one of us here, in whatever context you may be, whatever financial situation you, they, they may be in, for each person here, that they will consider what it means. What it means to use their blessings to reach others around them. God, thank you. Thank you again for blessing our church, and I pray that even as a, a church, we think about what it means to use our facilities and all the different things that we have here on this church campus. God, may we not be haughty, may we not set our hopes upon these riches, but may we continue to remember you, the provider of all things, and let us continue to worship you and worship Christ, your Son, who through him you have indeed gained the richest blessings of all, eternal life. So Lord, thank you again for all this. I pray this in your name. Amen.